Let me start with a pop quiz. How many accounts of Jesus' birth does Scripture contain? Now, the folks who are in education for ministry, especially the second years, who, are stu who study the Bible every week, I'm going to ask you to keep quiet and let the other members of the congregation try to answer. Well, as Deacon Joe Abrakta told us two weeks ago, both the Gospels of Mark and John skip over the early life of Jesus entirely. So that leaves us with some simple subtraction. From a total of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we subtract two, Mark and John, and this leaves us with two other Gospels, that is Matthew and Luke. So there are two Gospels that tell about Jesus' early days. Of the two, however, the Gospel of Luke gets far more attention in the popular imagination, and we find this especially true on this day, the fourth Sunday of Advent, when in the other years of the reading cycle, we hear stories about Mary and not about Joseph. In other years, the first time we hear it, we hear the story of the Annunciation. The story begins, as you well know, with the angel Gabriel coming to Mary to announce to her and to her alone that she will bear by the Holy Spirit, she will conceive by the Holy Spirit and bear a son whom she will name Jesus. That's the first story. The second story we hear on this fourth Sunday of Advent is the second half of the same story in which Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, like Mary, carries a son in her womb that is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And when in the womb John senses the presence of Jesus, he leaps for joy. Mary, in response, speaks the words of what we call the Magnificat. My soul doth magnify the Lord arguably one of the most familiar texts in Anglicanism, and we sang it today in hymn number 437, Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Both these episodes from the Gospel of Luke focus on Mary, and Luke only mentions Joseph once, really as just a side note at the beginning of the Annunciation, that visitation from the angel Gabriel. Joseph really makes his debut in, God, in the Gospel of Luke only when he takes a very pregnant Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem at the beginning of the Nativity story. If we turn to today's story from Matthew, we see the same kind of beginning as in Luke. Matthew begins, now the birth of the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother had been engaged to Joseph, it's just like what Luke says. But instead of focusing on Mary, Matthew keeps the focus on Joseph. An angel appears to, to uh, Joseph, not Mary, and in an echo of the angel Gabriel and Luke, that angel in Matthew tells Joseph that Mary will conceive and bear a son from the Holy Spirit, whom Joseph will name Jesus. The same message that Gabriel shares with Mary in the Gospel of Luke. And we uh, do see these striking similarities, but they should not blind us to the differences between the two Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, we might see a highlight of the story as Mary pondering how it came to pass that she, a virgin, will bear God's Son. Here in Matthew, this fact that Mary will bear the Son of God also precipitates Joseph's central concern. Should he divorce Mary by putting her away quietly? As Raymond Brown argues in his 700-page book on the birth narratives, you didn't think there could be 700 pages, but there is. 
Joseph takes Mary as his wife because he is both upright, as the Gospel says, but also merciful. Let's make no mistake. Joseph initially does see Mary, his betrothed, as an adulteress. And even though in their betrothal, Mary and Joseph are pledged to one another, and many couples did have sexual intercourse during this period, Joseph could divorce Mary. He could follow the precepts of the book of Deuteronomy, which we didn't read, a book in the Bible that governs all kinds of behavior for observant Jews even today. Now, for adultery, this dictated public stoning. But being merciful, Joseph resolves to put her away quietly, thus avoiding her shame and by reflection his own. He really changes his mind completely only when that angel appears to him in a dream and commands him to take Mary as his betrothed. And the remainder of the story in Matthew recounts the facts of the matter. He does take Mary into his house, does not have sex with her, and when Mary bears her son, he does name him Jesus. These are events very similar to Luke's story. But as we will see in Matthew, Luke also looks to history to frame his recounting. For example, using the Song of Hannah, which we just sang this morning at the beginning of the service, as the model for the Magnificat that we just sang as well. But as we will see on Christmas Eve, Luke sees the Nativity and the surrounding story as radical. Not as backward-looking, but forward-looking. For example, the heavenly host will burst into view over the manger, singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those whom God favors. Matthew is low-key. He depicts events in a much more straightforward manner. Yes, we have an angel, but the angel doesn't appear to Joseph in the flesh. It comes in a dream, seemingly at one remove from real life. So let's return to that dream because it contains important information about how Matthew sees the nativity as continuity with history. In that dream, the angel speaks to Joseph, calling him son of David, to emphasize his historical connection. With Matthew, Matthew lays out in a genealogy which precedes the story we read today, tracing with some artistic license Jesus back through 42 generations to Abraham, the father of Judaism, who, like Joseph, was faithful to God's call to him. And as Matthew narrates the dream, the gospel writer sees echoes of the prophet Isaiah. We read that story today. It is quoted in the gospel. Look, a virgin or a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, that is, God with us. This echoes the meaning of the name Jesus, which, as Matthew points out, means God saves. We can see that for Matthew, historical precedent matters. Even Jesus' name, that is Yeshua in Hebrew, or Joshua, alludes to the biblical figure of the same name. Joshua, after the death of Moses, leads the people of Israel into the Promised Land. And this, in turn, reinforces the reference to Jesus as Emmanuel, the one who saves. Think of Matthew's story as an interlocking set of rhetorical moves, all meant to bind Jesus more closely to the history of his people. And we might surmise that Matthew does this in part because he writes largely for a Jewish audience, Luke addresses a largely Gentile audience, 
an audience that may not have a familiarity with the Hebrew Scriptures as the audience that Matthew writes to. Alright, so we've taken a long look at Matthew. I've given you the history. I've compared his story to that of Luke. But all of this fails to answer a simple question. So what? So what if Matthew tells the story? Um, what are we to do with it? The way to ask the question, perhaps, is this. How are we bound by the story if we are bound at all? As postmodern Americans who love freedom, or at least the illusion of freedom, we might have pause. When we read the story from Luke of the Annunciation, I, as a preacher, always emphasize Mary's ability to say yes. She had a choice. God does not force Mary through the intermediary of the angel Gabriel to make a decision. Mary makes a choice. And we tend to underplay the notion of freedom in Matthew's Gospel and make it more about obedience. In part, that's because Matthew, as I said, emphasizes the historical aspects. If the figures of the past said yes to God's call, then we might expect Joseph to do so as well. But like Mary, Joseph has a choice to make. But in reality, he actually has two choices. One on his own and one at the bidding of the angel. First, he can act righteously in obedience to the law. The law governed many aspects of the life of the Jewish people, even today it does. To be bound to Torah, to law, was not a burden for Jews, but was a gift from God. And we tend to underplay the gravity of Joseph's decision to obey the dictates of the angel over Torah. We might find it full of common sense that he spares Mary humiliation or even death. It makes perfect sense. But as a righteous man, that is a law-abiding man of Torah, Joseph's very identity would have been bound up in his obedience to that law, even as he contemplates ahead of the angel's appearance to break the law and to put mercy above all else. In itself, this constitutes a radical act. His second decision parallels Mary's in the Gospel of Luke. She says yes to the angel Gabriel, who announces the good news of Jesus' appearance in Mary's wombs. No less importantly, Joseph says yes to the angel in his dream. I want us to pause at that moment because it contains a sense of a weighty decision that we too may have faced in our own lives. Do we do the new thing, the thing that seems foreign or strange or even wrong? Or do we stick to the tried and true? Because we know the outcome, when we read Joseph's story, it seems patently obvious what he should do. He should take Mary as his betrothed because she is the God-parer whose child will change the course of the world. And when the angel tells Joseph that in the moment, he cannot know that for certain. If we make him a blindly obedient to God's summons, then we leech out any humanity and make him an automaton walking blindly through life. As humans, like Joseph, we only know that our decisions are right by living through the results of them. You know that. Decisions that seem right or good in the moment can turn out to be misguided or wrong as we live along into them. Did Joseph think of that as well? If I do this, things may not turn out the way that I think they will. As I said, from our vantage point 2,000 years later, 
it all seems pretty evident. Things work out in the gospel the way they're supposed to. But let's not go there yet. That's the story and sentiment for Christmas Eve. We got two days. Today, we stay in the harder moment, suspended between doubt and hope, as Joseph says yes to the angel and still awaits the outcome of that ascent. Amen.